Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the regular Nature podcast is a fresh-faced young journalism student, then Backchat is very much a grizzled hack. This week on the show, we've got a panel of guests from across the globe, and we'll be talking about genome editing and the role of science reporting in the 21st century. I'm Benjamin Thompson, and joining me in the studio are David Sirinoski. Hi, Ben. I am the Asia-Pacific correspondent for Nature based in Shanghai. Alison Abbott. Hi, Ben. I report for Nature from Munich in Germany. And Heidi Ledford. Hi, I'm Heidi Ledford. I'm a biomedical reporter in London. Coming up in the show, we'll be chatting about the changing face of science journalism. Our panel have decades of combined reporting experience. How has the field evolved? Where might it end up? Firstly, though, Nature has recently had a lot of coverage on how CRISPR was used to edit the genomes of two babies in China. And uh, this was done by the researcher He Jinghui, who edited these babies' genomes to attempt to disable the genetic pathway that HIV uses to infect cells. In the wake of this, researchers and politicians have been grappling with how to prevent this happening again. David, this is something that you've been following closely. Yes, we've been following it closely for several years, especially from 2015 when people uh, first edited the genomes of human embryos. And there was a lot of attention drawn to it at that time because people thought, well, now they're just doing it for research, but pretty soon they're going to be doing it for actual reproduction. And at the time, everyone thought, well, that's, that's still far off. Like, no one's actually going to try to do that because it's just a little too zany and it's too unpredictable and dangerous. And then scientists around the world were about to meet to discuss this and how we might prevent it or what we might do to regulate it. And we got this announcement that it happened, that actually someone in China had um, gene-edited embryos and then produced two baby twin girls from it. And uh, I think what was surprising for me was how surprised scientists were. I mean, this really caught them off guard and started a lot of soul-searching in the community since last November. Were you surprised, David, when you found out? I was surprised. I didn't think it was going to happen this soon, for sure. That's what I thought. So I was surprised, too. And I and I, I thought, well, why is this surprising? Because I did think it would happen. And I guess I thought we would have another year or two. But the other thing that surprised me was what they did with it. You know, her took what to me seemed a very bizarre approach of sort of justifying it medically by saying, you know, we've engineered these children of an HIV-positive father so that they will be less likely to contract HIV. And I just, to me, that it was just not a medically compelling argument. That's what actually annoyed scientists was that it was not a compelling argument to take a risk like this. You know, some people say they they differentiate between genetic enhancement and modification for like correction. And they were saying this is not something that was a correction. You're trying to prevent something that probably will never happen. So it was um, taking a huge risk with very, very marginal benefit. And how do we know that this is actually the first time it's happened? Because I could imagine the technology is relatively easy to do. This guy chose to make it public. But do we know that there's not 20 other people out there who have not quietly done this on behalf of the parents? No, we really don't. And and that was part of what was surprising, too, is that this guy, I thought when it first happened, it would happen like that. Like we'd find out a couple of years later, this someone was claiming it, and then we'd have to verify the claims. But this time, it was the guy, was he was ready to like just make this big splash. And he really naively thought that everybody was going to say, oh, this is this is great. He pushed the envelope like the people who did the first IVF babies, which is now obviously an accepted technology. He thought he was in that vein. So he thought everyone was going to embrace him. And obviously they didn't. 
so the researcher at the centre of this is, is He Jinghui, who was initially lauded in China for this work, I think, and has since pretty much been stricken from the record. And, uh, and the Chinese government have now introduced some, some guidelines, seemingly as a result of his work. Right. From what I've heard, he understood that there were regulations against this from going back from 2003 that said you shouldn't do this. But they didn't have penalties attached to them. It wasn't a law that if you do this, you go to jail. So from what I've heard, he thought, well, then I can do it. Maybe they won't like it, but it's not illegal. And now China, I think, is struggling right now to figure out what to do with him because there weren't laws that said if you do this, you go to jail. So part of what they've done is come up with regulations that say – if you do this, that basically you can lose your job. It'll affect your career in, in various ways. You can't get more grants. Your hospital might not be able to do clinical research anymore. And it also said these raft of laws that we already have that have criminal penalties attached to them might apply. So it gave a kind of clear framework on how someone might be uh, treated in the future if they do the same thing. Well, as someone who has been reporting on this from China, how, how difficult has it been to cover the story if her has been has been stricken from records and what have you? Well, the, the striking of him from the record has been one of the stories, so that's been uh, easy to report on. It's quite interesting to see how China has done this. I mean, they've actually gone to um, web pages in the past where they used to laud him for other things, for like genomic um, sequencing technology that he developed. And they went back and they took down all these articles that were on the government websites. So that was very interesting to see. And then um, WeChat, which is the main uh, social media application in China with like millions and millions of users, they stopped – people talking about this. So that was all uh, very high-level censorship. So it's clearly an embarrassment to China. And it's hard because you can't call up the Ministry of Science and Technology and say, what are you going to do about this? They don't want to talk about it. Scientists don't really want to talk about it either because it's such a sensitive topic. So it has been hard to get people's opinions. But there are plenty of people around the world that are ready to talk about this. So, uh, so you can do a lot of reporting from outside China, from inside China to give kind of that feel of what's going on, it's been quite difficult. Well, speaking of people from around the world then, so the Chinese government is not alone. Separately, an international group of researchers and ethicists have called not for an outright ban, but for a moratorium on the clinical use of heritable genome editing. And uh, this amounts essentially to a pause in research to allow for discussions about the technology to take place. Now, this call was made in a comment piece in Nature, and it's something that the U.S. National Institutes of Health have also supported. I mean, opening this out to the panel, why would we need a moratorium in the first instance? I guess one thing I wonder is, would a moratorium have stopped her? I mean, would it have gotten through? Because we already had an international report um, saying, you know, whoa, 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 let's not do this yet. We're not ready, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he did it anyway. And, and the moratorium, I have the sense, is trying to be a bit more clear and firm about that. But uh, I, I just don't know if it would have gotten through. No, it wouldn't. I mean, China already had what was amounted to a, a moratorium. Um, and they already had uh, the great and good from the scientific community imposed what is amounted to a moratorium in 2015 at a different conference. And, and since then, there's been several high-level international organizations that have put out what basically is a moratorium. Don't do this yet. We're not ready for it. So, no, I don't think it, it would have stopped him to have this moratorium that came out now. I guess the other thing that I wonder is, you know, these other scientists who knew, would it have made them more likely to say something? So these other scientists that knew, there's a lot of finger pointing now at them. And, and I don't know that I think it's quite fair because they didn't know exactly what he was doing. They, they knew what he told them he was doing. Part of that was that he had ethical approval to do this, which might not be true. We don't know. But there's a lot that we don't know about what they knew. 
And even if they did know, what do they, they go to the Chinese government and call the police? There's no clear route for how they could have handled this. I don't quite think it's fair the way some of them have been accused of covering this up or something like that. I think um, moratoriums don't really stop people doing things that they have the technology to be able to do. But I still think they have great value in allowing some sort of structure to societal debate on the thing and sort of helping authorities to to get a toehold onto the subject. Yeah, I think what might be more, you know, a moratorium could convince governments around the world to take this more seriously if they see this. And for example, there's going to be a meeting at the WHO to discuss this. And if you have the WHO looking at the call for moratorium and saying, well, yeah, maybe we should reflect this in recommendations that we give to governments around the world, then it might have some effect in, in going forward. But, you know, I don't know that that would do anything to stop rogue actors. Yeah, and I think that's the rub. And that's something that you've reported on before, David, as well, is that the, the maverick in inverted commas or, you know, or, or the outsider, you might say, hey, everyone, please, let's not do this. That's not necessarily going to stop them, right? You know, I've reported on a lot of rogue actors, and I think they always find a way to rationalize or justify what they're doing, often with knowledge of what the rules are. So they'll find a way around them. And in fact, Hu Jiankui, I think, to some extent, thought that he did this. He thought, well, I'm supposed to be public and transparent, and he did go around to uh, researchers around the world and say, hey, I'm, this is what I'm doing. And he apparently counted this as some kind of transparency. So some of the things that we're now saying we in the future, we have to do more of this. I wonder how much he'd be like, yeah, that's what I did. But maybe having a distinct set of rules, not just what he thinks, but what he's written down w- would offer some some value to researchers and, and also to, to people who want to blow the whistle, give them a path to do things as well. Yeah, I think so. Ha- having a clear line of reporting for something like this would, would definitely be good for other any anybody that knew about it. Well, thinking about a different sort of reporting, maybe what we do here as well, I mean, what role do we have when covering things like this? I mean, uh, the phrase, the auction of publicity is maybe uh, one that is important here. If, if we keep covering the nuances and saying this has been done, this this person did this thing, d- does that maybe exacerbate the problem with, with, with rogue actors later on? I think it helps the problem enormously because I, I know I've done rogue actors too, particularly a few rogues in Italy that I can think of where the the rogues themselves have managed to get government support. And having this exposed in an international journal, the government of of Italy can ignore nature, and and they do, they ignore nature, but it gives a weapon in the hands of the protagonist operating in Italy trying to control these people. And this is very effective, I've found. Well, what about journals themselves? I mean, we think of controversial things that can be can be published, uh, uh, virus genomes or what have you. What what uh, what role does the sort of the publishing world have for this as well? Do we think? In general, I think there's a lot of people who say you shouldn't publish this. And after uh, Hu made his announcement, and there were a lot of people saying, "Hey, you have to publish this. This is like part of the scientific endeavor. Before you do something like this, or when you do it, you got to publish it and let us know." And then there's a lot of people saying. No one should allow him to publish that anywhere. He's basically broken law. He's broken all kinds of ethical rules. He shouldn't get any benefit by publication out of this. So it's not a clear line forward on that. And David, you know, this this whole story centers around these these two girls. Um, do we know what's going to happen to them as as they grow older? Is there any special medical care in place? Yeah, there there definitely should be special medical care in place. But I don't think we're going to find out about it because one of the things that everybody has emphasized on all sides is that the girls should have anonymity. They don't want to have these girls growing up, everybody knowing that they have been the first gene-edited babies in the world. Basically, I think they're they're going to be protected and everything is going to be confidential. So I don't think there's going to be any big announcements. 
I trust that the Chinese government is going to consult with all the people it needs to do the tests that should be done in such a case. Ideally, they would come out later and say, we're, we're not going to tell you who these girls are, but this is what we did to make sure that they got all the treatment that they needed. And that might be a positive outcome out of this. Well, moving on to our second topic for this edition of Backchat, Alison here, after a remarkable 27 years working as a staff reporter, is is moving on to work as a freelancer. Alison, in your 27 years, you must have seen it all. I guess I have seen it all. I've got a lot of tales to tell. Right. Well, let's maybe talk about some of those tales. Um, maybe well, let's start here. What are you most proud of in, in your 27 years reporting for Nature? Well, there's, there's a bit of a list, but just to put it in context, when we report for Nature, we have to do stories about the politics of science, the process of science and the science itself. So I can give a nice example of the process of science, which was very exciting for me. I went to Kyrgyzstan with a group of geneticists who were going along the Silk Road, starting in Venice and finishing China, collecting biological samples from different tribes and communities and populations. And this was one of the biggest adventures I've ever had. It's somewhere extremely foreign for me, very, very exotic. And um, when I arrived there after a long, long journey at three o'clock in the morning, I got a call on my cell phone from somebody in Romania breaking another news story, which became quite a big thing for us because it was the very beginning of the high-level plagiarism scandal of Romania. And there I was in Tashkent, burning to do this story, but then burning to go out on the road with the with the crew. Uh, we sorted it out. We always sort it out. So I was very proud of that. I mean, everyone says you make your own luck, Alison, I think, right? And, and just being in the, in the right place at the right time and knowing these people and having this story is, is a fine example of that. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. You have to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, chance favours the prepared mind, to quote Louis Pasteur. And I think basically when you're a journalist, you're not as good at the beginning as you are at the end because you accumulate this experience, you accumulate contacts that trust you. For example, a guy from Romania calling me spontaneously about this this thing. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been, you know, trudging around speaking to people for so many years. I mean, I've looked up when your, your first article for Nature was, and it was uh, dated the 26th of March, 1992, and it was entitled Better Luck Second Time. Really? Yeah. What do you, what do you remember about that? I'm guessing not <laughs> <Nothing>. very much. <laughs> what, I've, what I learned from what you say now is that we weren't very good at headlines then, because this gives me <laughs> no clue as to what it was about. Well, well, on that then, in, in the last sort of 27 years or so, and let's throw this out maybe to, to, the, to the rest of you as well. What has changed in the way that science has been reported or the way that you've reported it? It's changed beyond description. In the first years that I worked, the telephone was the key operators. And telephones with leads that you sat at your desk and you had one on your right hand, you had one on your left hand. And the key thing was to get to somebody so you couldn't just send them an email and they wouldn't necessarily be in their office. They might be in their lab. They might be at a meeting. So you used to develop these techniques of finding out who was in the next office to them. So you would collect a yearbook from institutes, pull it off your shelf, look through the names, and call somebody else in that institute and say, hey, you know, Dr. So-and-so, is he in today? Can you pop down the corridor and find him? This changed, of course, with the internet. And now I don't have two telephones. I have my cell phone. But basically, if you want to call somebody, I sort of feel obliged to, first of all, write them an email to say, I'm going to call you in a few minutes. Is this okay? 
this is presumably as well just contracted the time it takes to do things as well. If you're waiting for someone to return your call, that might be a, you know, a few hours or whatever, where an email is, is you know, straight away. I mean, that has inherently sped up the process of reporting science, surely. Yeah, dramatically. And so the expectations and the bar have also risen. Right. As my brother has said, if he were the only one that had this technology, it'd be great because he could move faster than everyone else. But as the technology just gets faster and faster, you're just like running faster and faster to keep up with everyone else who has the same technology. Yeah, that's been the case. I mean, even the past 12 years, I guess, that I've been at Nature, I can remember when I first came and we were very print magazine driven and something would happen this week and we'd say, all right, we're going to write a story about it and it'll show up next week and that will be fine. you know. And now you really you have to kind of anticipate ahead of time so that you can write most of the story ahead of time and then you know tweak it as needed and run it immediately online. And it's quite different. Yeah, for me, the constant input of Twitter and other, I mean, just get a barrage of this stuff all the time. And so where it used to be, you could get a story and know that you had a week to write it. Now it's just like the story is constantly changing because there's always someone adding some little element to it as you go along. So you're thinking, is this still a news story for me because there's so much out there? And what can I add that's different? It's a constant redirecting of the course you're on on a story. I mean, as technology and the world has changed so much, maybe your role has changed from telling people what's going on to maybe curating all the kind of chatter that's going on around the world. Do you you think that's true, maybe? I think that is true to a very, very large extent. We interpret the news as a sort of raison d'etre in many ways. A lot of the information that you are talking about is completely wrong and misleading, misguided, deceitful. So I think we have uh, maybe as an important role or more important role in, in trying to differentiate the good and the bad and the scientifically validated, justified, and that's what is often just used to manipulate people, especially in, in biomedical fields. We're writing about stuff that um, I would say more than half of the stuff you see out there on the Internet is probably wrong and often there for a purpose to, to try to make money off people. But we still break news stories, and for a journalist... There's nothing finer than breaking a story. What's the favourite story you've ever broken then, Alison? I guess one of my favourites is breaking open the story of a maverick stem cell researcher in Italy simply because he was able to operate behind the scenes and had managed to inveigle himself into government sources and had government support. Being able to break that story was very profound A nice little story that I broke quite recently was the discovery of an original letter of Galileo that had been completely unknown. As I recall, that's just because it had been dated wrong and put in the wrong drawer, right? More or less. And also because, you know, people were looking where the light was, you know, instead of looking systematically or keeping a mind open to where Galileo's documents might be. Most of them are held elsewhere. And uh, and I also know that this one got worldwide coverage as a result of your find. I mean, that must have made you feel pretty pretty awesome. No, it was terrific. It was also a terrific story because it was a happy story. Most of our stories that we do are sort of quite miserable, you know. They're sort of like fraud and happiness, people behaving badly. But this one was pure joy. What about you, David? For me, well, I'll, I'll mention this because it's connected to what we were talking about earlier, but in 2015, we wrote the uh, first story about the gene-edited human embryo, which kind of kicked off all the debate that culminated with the Hu Jiankui announcement that he'd done it in, in babies. We all knew that there was likely people doing this, and we we're trying to find who was going to be the first one to do it. 
And um, I was driving around with a, a guy in China who was researching something else and I just started talking about this and I wonder when this is going to happen. And he said, oh, it's already happened. I said, it, it has? And he said, yeah. And he got on his mobile phone and called the guy who did it and set up an interview for me with him. And the next day I interviewed him and that day we went to press and had the story and then it kind of started this whole debate about the ethics of gene editing and when's the first baby going to be born and things like that. And Heidi, what's the favorite story that you've broken? It's like trying to pick your favorite child. It's a bit, um, but oh, the easy. one, yeah. <laughs> ouch! <laughs> I love all of mine just the same. Um, the one that comes to mind was not like huge, splashy news or anything, but it was one fairly soon after I first started, and it was about you know some researchers at a federal hospital in the United States, and there was some internal politics going on. I think um, for whatever reason, this sort of priceless, valuable collection of various bacterial pathogens was destroyed in the process, and uh, you know there was there was a small outcry from the community, and I think I did a story about that. And then a couple of years later, there was a congressional hearing about it. Um, so I did the follow-up story about the congressional hearing. And I remember my editor said, well, did they have this hearing because of your story? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to ask. That's just a tacky question. And I don't want to put that in the article. I'm not, he said, no, 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 you need to ask. And so I asked. And it turned out that it was because of our story. And uh, I thought, well, that's neat, <laughs> I guess, because I think at the time I didn't realize necessarily that, you know, staffers in Congress were reading nature and that our stories had that kind of reach. Well, there we have it. Many thanks to my guests, David Sironowski, Heidi Ledford and Alison Abbott for joining me today. You can read their work and more stories from the world of science over at nature.com slash news. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at The Nature Podcast, you can reach out on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. This has been Backchat. I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. I have a secret. I wore the wrong foundation for years. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews and 50 shades of flawless coverage, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. It's tough buying foundation online, but their Power Match quiz matched me perfectly. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your shade free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.